So, with that then, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll read the first two verses. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Amen. May God bless thus far the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to the word of God preached and we ask for divine help that you would enable your minister to preach what can be a very confusing and difficult uh, topic for the people of God in our time. And we know, Father, that we are often the product of our time and we often take what the church does by tradition. And so help us to know the mind of God. And for that, Father, your minister pleads for the Holy Spirit to be uh, active and working in the preaching of the word, that you would cause your minister to preach the truth and not tradition, to preach the truth of the word of God, that you might be glorified out of it. And we pray that the same spirit would come upon all who would hear now, that you would use this word mightily in the people of God. And if there are any here who have not known Christ as their Savior, as the mystery of the gospel is unfolded, Father, may they flee to Christ. And may they see what is signified in the waters of baptism as something that they can take and have without price, as we heard in our call to worship. So, Father, we pray that you would fill this place with your Spirit, that we might bring glory to God. And to that end, Father, We pray as we come to the preaching of the word that you would help me preach not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, today, the refrain of the book of Judges almost seems like it is the constitution of the church, which is what, boys and girls, you remember the refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You can almost think that this is the statement of faith that most churches have adopted and we ourselves might veer into. And it's very interesting, right, that as we think so often on every man did that which was right in his own eyes, we forget what precedes it, which was in those days there was no king in Israel. But brethren, is there not a king? Is there not a king in the church? Is there not a king whose name is Jesus Christ, Son of God? There is a king in the church. And so what that means is that in the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, we are not to do what is right in our own eyes, but we are to do what thus saith the Lord. And so we come today to know there is a king in the church, knowing that even sometimes with the best of motives, beloved. We can often do what is right in our own eyes, not inquiring of the Lord. What will He have us do? How will you have us go, King Jesus? And what every Christian and every church and every minister and every elder must not run afoul of is what God has to say in His Word. We must search it out. And not be guilty of doing what is right merely in our own eyes. Before we do anything, especially in the worship of God, we must ask, has God asked of this? And if he has asked for it, how does he ask for us to do this thing? 
And so, as we consider the sacraments this morning, uh, we consider solemnly and sadly today, especially when it comes to the sacraments, men often do what is right in their own eyes. Um, when I first came to faith, I had a friend who would administer communion to himself in his own home. Fathers administer communion to their own families at times. Youth leaders are now administering um, the Lord's Supper with Doritos and soda. And it's a shocking thing, friends. It's not shocking to them because they haven't asked. The question, again, I'm not, not saying these aren't true believers, but we can all, true believers, run afoul of doing what is right in our own eyes. And that's something we must not do, especially in the worship of God. And today, friends, and this comes closer to our theme, often we find friends baptizing their friends, right, in the public worship of God. Or we have fathers or mothers doing it to their children. And we ask, has God asked for them to do these things? And again, they do it the best of motives, undoubtedly, and they are overjoyed that their children or their friend has professed Christ. But we have to ask, has the king asked for that? Has the king asked for that? And so before we defend any practice, we must ask of ourselves, is there no king in Zion? And has he not instructed us in the way to go? And today we're going to ask the question, has the king given us men to administer his ordinances? Right? Are there men set apart for the work of administering his sacraments and his ordinances? And if we would only inquire of the word of God, we would find the answer which is that Christ's ministers are the stewards of his sacraments. Christ's ministers are the stewards of his sacraments. And that's our theme this morning. And by God's help, I trust, we will establish it out of the word of God by good and necessary consequence, especially. We'll consider this under the three heads on your bulletin. First is stewards. We'll consider that as our first heading. Second is mysteries. And third is sacraments. First, stewards. And one reason for the trouble that we find in the church today is that we neglect the truth that Christ has established particular offices in the church. And that truth is being eroded more and more. And I am aware, especially as Americans and in our culture today, especially the idea of an office is not cherished, right? We don't have a high regard for our institutions. We don't have a high regard for our office. For instance, we find ourselves, and I know many good Christian men and women will do this, we often find ourselves guilty of mocking our presidents. Right? Instead of heeding the biblical command, which is, fear God, honor the king. Because we don't have a high view of office. And we especially are unaware, seemingly, of a distinction between an office and the man who occupies the office. Right? But offices established by God, both in the civil magistrate and in the church, are to be respected regardless of its occupant. These offices have roles and they have domains that are specific to each one that ought not be violated. Uh, Boys and girls, I think uh, many of you love this, this narrative in the Old Testament. Do you remember valiant priest Azariah? Do you remember him? And he confronted King Uzziah. King Uzziah had what? He had taken it on himself to offer incense to the Lord. Who alone could do it? The priests, right? 
So in 2 Chronicles 26, 19, Azariah and fourscore of his priests withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, and these are the important words, it appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated, that'll be important later on, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Do you remember what happened, boys and girls, next? The king was struck with leprosy, right? Uzziah had an office in Judah. He was her king. But it did not even appertain to his office to offer incense, and he transgressed the Lord. You see, we have to ask, who do these things appertain unto? That's what we have to ask. Before we do anything in the church, before any man does anything, whatever office he has, if he has office in the church, he has to ask, does it appertain unto me to do this thing? So what we're going to establish is Christ has given particular officers in his church to administer gospel ordinances, especially two in particular. The preached word, first and foremost, and subservient to the preached word, the sacraments, which are the Lord's Supper and baptism. And these officers, I'll say this now, are pastors. They're also called ministers of the gospel. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, our sermon text. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here, the apostle speaks of the ministers of Christ. And you might know often in the Greek text, what is under the word minister is the word servant, from which we establish usually our word deacon. But the word translated minister in our text is not that word. And it is actually very rare in the New Testament. Uh, It speaks of an office defined as an assistant to another as an instrument of his will. So it's a particular office in which the one in office is defined as an assistant to another as the instrument of his will. He is an instrument used by another. Another place that this word was used in the New Testament was Christ's first sermon in the synagogue. When Jesus was done reading the Isaiah scroll, Luke 4.20 says, he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister, that's that Greek word, and he sat down. So there was an official synagogue minister, an assistant to the rabbi as the instrument of his will, and his official charge was to handle the scrolls that were being read. In other words, nobody in the congregation would be able to go and handle those scrolls. That was Uh, particularly given to this particular minister, this man by way of his office. He alone authorized to handle them. And so, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to gospel ministers as instruments of Christ's will with an official charge, and we'll establish this later, to preach the word and administer the sacraments as subservient to them. Now, Their role becomes clearer when he says that these ministers are stewards of God's mysteries. Meaning these ministers are entrusted with something quite sacred, with the the mysteries of God. And we'll consider what those mysteries are in the next heading. But you have to understand the language here. This is a solemn trust. This is an official charge. And not everyone is given this charge. And you know that the idea of a steward is found throughout the scriptures. 
It was also very well understood in the time of Paul in the prevailing culture, so that the Corinthians would have been very well aware of what Paul is speaking of. Stewards, they had not a casual role, they had an official role in the management of a household, right? Especially the houses of lords. Recall how Jesus spoke of stewards in the parable of the faithful steward in Luke 12, 42 to 43. Who then is that faithful and wise steward? That's that same Greek word. Whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household. Do you see that? That's the purpose. Here's one who has an official rule or oversight of his household. And here's what's very interesting, and we might neglect what he says next. Here's their purpose. To give them their portion of meat in due season. You see, they are given this stewardship to manage the household of God for what purpose? To give them their portion of food in their due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. And in Luke 12's context, if you know it, the house Christ was speaking of was his house, the church, the church, that he has given some men to be stewards to manage his household. And so delegated to stewards was the management or rule of God's house. Again, to give the household their portion of food in due season. And now you can very easily then connect this to the charge that Peter received from Christ in John 21, can't you? You remember, we'll think on this for a moment, Peter had denied Christ three times, hadn't he? Right? And what did Christ do in John 21? He brings that to Peter's mind, right? Why does he ask Peter three times, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? It's to remind Peter, this is why Peter is grieved. It's not always, as people say, the change in the Greek word necessarily of what love is in that text, but really that Peter had denied him three times. So Peter, I'm going to get from you a confession three times that you love me, right? Uh, so that Peter's ministry would be validated as well. Three times erased was his denial. But what was Christ's purpose in pressing him? That Peter would be faithful to feed his church with the word of God. John 21, 17. Peter was grieved because he said unto him, the third time lovest thou me. And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. So what does Jesus tell him? Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You see, this is the charge, isn't it, to the stewards of the house of God, to feed Christ's sheep. That wasn't a charge given to everybody, but it was given to the apostles, and then following after them, the charge is given to pastors. Boys and girls, it might be important for you to remember what the word pastor means. It's a simple word, isn't it? It means what? Shepherd, right? Shepherd. What does that bring to mind? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Their charge, a pastor's charge, is to give the people spiritual food and to do it faithfully, to rightly divide the word of God, to show what these signs and seals of the covenant of grace means, that when he points you to the water, he can explain exactly how it portrays the gospel. That's a charge, a solemn trust given to the lambs, uh, to the, the, those who would be shepherds over the lambs. Only some of the flock are pastors, right? Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some apostles gone, some prophets gone, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Some are pastors. 
Not all are charged with feeding the flock this food. Some are given this role. And that is what makes a distinction in the church between the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, where all of us can go to the word of God. All of us can go to Christ in prayer. All of us can call on the name of the Lord. And those particular members of the congregation who are pastors taken out of the flock and given an official trust, given an official charge to rightly divide the word and administer the ordinances of God. And so when the apostle's gone, the feeding of the flock is primarily given to ordinary pastors. And these are men who are set apart for their office, as you might know, by ordination by their presbytery. That gives a man an official commission And you often see this when a man is ordained, he's also given a charge by the presbytery to be faithful to what has been committed to his trust. Consider how Paul taught Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer. So here's a charge, right? In word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. With what? The laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Here's also what's important when you consider these men. Give thyself wholly to them. These are men consecrated as the Old Testament priests, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So pastors are set apart to ordained office by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, men wholly given over to the work of the ministry, wholly given over to what? Public reading, reading the word, public exhortation, preaching the word, and to teaching doctrine. This is their life when they become a pastor, when they become a minister. They are set apart from the world to do this thing. And that separates them from every other office bearer in the church. And that, Paul would have pastors connected, in a sense, to the old Levitical priests. In that they are men wholly given over to the ministry, and not to do ordinarily other work. Now, to be clear on that, pastors are not priests, they're not mediators for you. But they are like Old Testament priests insofar as they are called to be men wholly given to the New Testament ministry. And they are entrusted with God's ordinances in the public worship of God especially, which is why today pastors give the ironic benediction out of number six. Now all this distinguishes pastors even from the ruling elders in the church, right? Ruling elders are not men wholly given to the ministry like our pastors are called to. And I was a ruling elder for many years. They have ordinary vocations, And that's a blessed thing, and they have so much God-given wisdom to give us. But they do not deal with things that appertain to preaching the word and administering sacraments. Their role is to join with the pastors in the governance and the shepherding of the church as under-shepherds. Just as in the Old Testament, uh, elders joined with the priests in the government of the Old Testament priests. Their domain is specifically government and private feeding of the flock, especially on the word of God and counsel and so on. We can consider that another time if we consider church government in the future. 
And I'll just say this pastorally as we are dealing with a lack of ruling elders in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. One of the reasons why I believe that with confusion over the office, we have fewer men seeking the office is they are intimidated, rightly so, by the public worship of God. And so they don't come to become ruling elders because they think that they have to be uh, uh, skilled in public reading, to be skilled in public prayers. But their role is, is distinct from the pastor who is to give himself right, holy unto the reading and to exhortation to doctrine and so on. And so we find then as we pray for more ruling elders in this congregation, if there are any men here who feel called to that, don't feel intimidating by the areas that appertain to ministers, but instead throw yourself wholeheartedly into the areas that deal with church governance and counsel and and feeding the people of God in those ways. That aside, the greatest labor of the minister is the preaching of the word, right? Second Timothy 4, 1 through 2. I charge thee, here's that charge language, thee therefore before God. Is he charging everybody? No, he's charging pastors. Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Let me just pause there for a moment. Do you see the gravity of this charge? That the man preaches in view that he will be judged before God. And that there is a judgment coming and he must preach faithfully that the Lord is going to judge the entirety of the earth and that men must flee to Christ. This is the charge given to the pastors. And it's a solemn thing. He says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That's a tremendous charge given to evangelical pastors before God and Christ to preach the word in season when they're ready to, to, to bless you and say, good sermon, pastor, and out of season when they're ready to stone you. And it is suited to their office as those wholly given to ministry that they would labor in the word and doctrine all the days of their life. And so returning to 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, We read, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so here's the other thing, right? These are men who are called to be faithful in the discharge of their office. They are going to be held to account by Christ and their presbytery, through through their presbytery to Christ. And that reminds us again of Christ's parable of the faithful steward in Luke 12, where he said, and that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whosoever much is given or entrusted, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You see, this is not an office in which a man gets to be a tyrant and gets to do whatever he wants, right? He will be beaten with many stripes. He will be accountable to Christ himself if he is not faithful in the discharge of his office. And I suppose many unfaithful ministers have been. We must never believe ministers are popes or tyrants. They're not to feed you on their own words, their own opinions, their own doctrines, or perform their own discipline. They're constrained out of love for Christ to be faithful to him and to love you and say, thus saith the Lord, 
No more, no less. Paul explains the tenor of the ministry in 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. They are meant to be a help to you. Now, here's the thing, right? As, as it was, as it was when that unfaithful king offered incense, who here among you, right, who hasn't been called to the office is going to deal with things that don't appertain to it? That you yourself will have to think on this, right? Will you be one prepared to give an account to the Lord as the unfaithful stewards are, right? We have to think on these things. We don't want to deal with holy things that we are not called to handle because we are accountable to God for all of that. So, that said, my time going quick away, these ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God. And so let's consider what these mysteries are as our second heading. Now, on hearing the word mystery, you might have a negative reaction, right? You might think of the cults, for instance. But Christianity is no mystery religion. There are no secrets in our faith, in other words. The Bible, as we might say, is an open book. All that we can do in the church comes out of the words of this book. And you can read it for yourself from front to back. In other words, the church is not a secret society. In fact, we have had long uh, years as the Reformed Presbyterian Church witnessing against secret societies. They have no place for the Christian. And so you will not learn deeper mysteries, right, as you do in the cults, as you go up some sort of org chart in the church. The teaching of our church is found in her confession, which is based on the word of God only and is subservient to it. And those who are about to take the membership covenant, these two dear souls, uh, they have spent weeks... uh, One has been here for quite some time. He's renewing his vows. But our sister, she has spent several weeks hearing what we believe and having an explanation out of the scripture why. There's nothing hidden. She has our constitution. She has the word of God on which the constitution is based. And so that when Paul here speaks of mysteries, he is not speaking of things that he is hiding from us, but rather great mysteries that are revealed to us revealed by the special revelation of God, the very word of God. Think of the greatest mystery of all, believer. Have you wondered what that might be? Think of yourself. How can I, a sinner, a sinful man or sinful woman, whose conscience testifies against me that I have, I have committed evil things, how can I be reconciled to a holy God? That's a great mystery, isn't it? How can I, the chief of sinners, ever possibly repay the debt that I owe Almighty God? Could you find the answer so vital to know by way of natural revelation and natural theology? No. The heavens declare the glory of God, but the heavens do not declare the salvation and righteousness of God and how you might have it. Natural theology tells you of God's eternal power and the Godhead and that we must serve him, Romans 1.20. But natural theology cannot and will not rightly explain how we as sinners can be saved. What a great mystery that is. And the sole solution to that mystery, right, that has eluded the world's natural theologians, 
which we call them, you saw this in the Calvin study, what do we call them? We call them the world's philosophers. Right? The natural theologians of the world, and you can see that their ideas are as varied as after the Tower of Babel. Right? This mystery, praise God, Paul is saying, has been revealed to us by the Holy Scriptures and has been entrusted particularly to particular men to proclaim with faithfulness to all the nations. It's the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed to us. And this is why pastors have long been called ministers of the gospel. Entrusted with the gospel ministry to reveal it to all. Paul tied this together in Ephesians six nineteen and 20. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. See, not to hide the mystery of the gospel. Not to keep it hidden but instead to reveal the mystery of the gospel. And here are some important words. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he had an official charge as an ambassador of Christ. And it's the work of the minister today to reveal the mystery of the gospel and not conceal it. To preach the word boldly, to speak boldly, the word that reveals the gospel ministry, such that gospel ministers take a very unpopular message that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are headed to hell and are to proclaim that message boldly, unashamedly, before the nations and say at the same time, you must flee to Christ. Note that Paul called himself an ambassador. That's an official, another official title, like a steward. And ministers are officially sanctioned to be ambassadors of Christ by a presbytery of Christ. Just as you think of this, right? Kings have ambassadors that are entrusted to speak on the king's behalf. Right? We have ambassadors in this nation that go to other countries. And when they speak, they speak with the full backing and authority of the United States of America. And that is what these ambassadors of Christ are. They are not Christ. But when, insofar as they speak the truth of Christ, they have to be received as though Christ himself is speaking it to them. And men like that, as Paul prayed, must know how they ought to speak. They are trained for the ministry. After all, the disciples spent three years, didn't they, with Christ at his feet. And I don't suppose it's a coincidence that most Reformed seminaries have a three-year program in which you rightly learn to divide the word of truth. And that is a weighty thing, right? To be held accountable to the preaching of the word. And that's not a weight every member of the church can bear. You know, I think any gospel minister who truly has the fear of the Lord trembles every time they come to a pulpit like this. You know, that was what John Knox said, right? I've never once feared the devil, but I tremble each time I open the word of God. I preach the word. I come to the pulpit, right? Because you are going to be held by God uh, to an account for the things you say. Just as, could you imagine an ambassador that is sent by the United States and says all kinds of crazy, loony things? How quickly he'll be called to account by the government. And so I also want us to consider Colossians 1, 25 through 28. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, 
to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, and now is made manifest to his saints. So here again is the gospel mystery, which had been hidden from ages and from generations. And we say, praise God, it is now made manifest to his saints, right? To whom God would have, uh, would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here is the most glorious revelation, isn't it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So here is the most glorious mystery of all in the gospel revealed, and it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ, right? It's not even the doctrine of justification, which is glorious, but what is more glorious than it is the person of Christ, who is our hope of glory. We interviewed our sister this morning, and that's exactly what she said. It is Christ who is my hope. It's Christ who is my hope. And it is this Christ we preach. In other words, then, right, it's not for the minister of the gospel to sit here and give you platitudes and entertain you as goats, but to preach up Christ. And he's going to be called to account for that, that you might receive him by faith. And if you do a word search, as we think on mysteries in the New Testament for that word, mysterion, it's mostly used of the mystery of the gospel or the mystery of the kingdom of God revealed. And we cannot go through all the texts this morning, but let me consider two with you that we might revel in the glory of these revelations to give glory to God. And as your minister, after all, I am charged to feed you on Christ by them. The first is the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. And here's a text that I almost wish I could just preach on this morning. And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. What? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Here's the mystery of godliness. Have you ever thought about it? Right? How can you, a sinner, be counted godly? How can you be justified before a holy God? Here is that mystery that God took on flesh in the incarnation to be our salvation. Jesus Christ, the God-man, came. He left the 99 to come to find the one, to be our mediator, to be the propitiation of our sins, to give us his own righteousness, to take away our sins by his blood, the blood of God, to die in our place on the cross, to give us eternal life raised on the third day and received up into glory and now sitting on God's right hand. The mystery of godliness, isn't it wonderful? No matter how hard you stare into the cosmos, you will never have that mystery revealed to you. And pastors are ambassadors to proclaim this on God's behalf out of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit. Here is that mystery of godliness that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Here's that charge. Who is that committed to? It is to his ministers. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. There's that concept again, beloved, as though here is the marvel, as though God, 
did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead or place, be ye reconciled to God. There are official ambassadors who preach to you, be ye reconciled to God in Christ. And when they preach that, because they are ambassadors of Christ, it is as though God is pleading with you to be reconciled to himself. And isn't that something? Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that glorious, right? And as officials, right, they have been entrusted with that message so that when a minister preaches that word, you know that God will accept your repentance and your faith in Christ because they are offering it to you on Christ's behalf with his own authority. Right now, God is pleading with you through me to take Christ. He's even now by his spirit saying, be ye reconciled to God. That is God speaking to you. That is God speaking to you out of his word. And that is really the solemnity and the joy of the office entrusted to me. Is that I can bring you that message and be faithful to it. That God would through me plead with you to take Christ, to live, to ask why would you die in your sins? And when I plead with you, that's God. That's Christ pleading with you. You know, and you, 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 also, you also have to understand that at some point the pleading ends. The pleading and the beseeching will end. And as he said, and it is entrusted to me as well to tell you this, right, that it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. So you must take Christ now. You don't know the next time you will hear God plead with you if you have not taken him yet. So take him. Take him, friend. You don't know when the next time the Lord might meet you. You might perish on your way home after this service. You might expire in the seat right now. So there is no time to delay. Today is the day of salvation. Take Christ yourself. What a thing it is that God is saying to you, right? Why would you perish when I, God Almighty, took on flesh that I might suffer for sinners, that they might have life everlasting? And will you ignore this message? So if that's one mystery, the mystery of godliness, let me give you another example of a gospel ministry, a mystery, Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. This is familiar to us being in our marriage series. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You can think of baptism soon, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. One of the other joys of the gospel ministry is this, is that I am called to preach that marriage reveals the great mystery of the love of the Son of God for you, his bride. 
that the Son of God took on flesh, right? God eternal took on flesh to be bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. That the Son of God loved his church so much to give his life out of, uh, for her out of love. What a great joy it is. Right? Isn't that a wonderful thing to proclaim to the nations and to proclaim to you who believe that this is the love of Christ. This is the love of God for you. It's a great mystery. Will the cosmos declare that mystery? No. But the word of God does. And it's entrusted to the stewards of the word of God that you would know that you could be members of his own body, that you are to leave the devil your father and cleave to Christ for eternity as a child leaves their parent to cleave to their spouse. And that by the blood and the water that flowed out of his side at Calvary, he might wash us and he might cleanse us. And what a great mystery that is to rejoice in today. Well, time is, is long gone. So having established the minister's office that it is entrusted to preach gospel ministry. Let's consider, lastly, the sacraments. So we've spent all this time now, right? And you say, Pastor, you still have not talked about the sacraments, and I thought that was the point. And you might ask, how does this apply to them? Well, I have two points that build on the two prior headings. The first is that as gospel mysteries are revealed by the preaching of the word of God, the sacraments are the word made visible in their elements, They are, as we've considered this in times past, sensible signs for our senses. But the sense of those signs is to be informed by the word of God as it is preached. The water of baptism, right? What would that be to you if you didn't have the word of God preached? The wine and the bread of the Lord's Supper, totally unintelligible without the preaching of the word of God. They degenerate, as it often does, into ritual, or they become superstition, and we believe, like the Roman Catholics believe, that they operate ex opera operata, right? By the working of the work, by themselves, that they do something miraculous. Or they become a bare ritual. Well, it's, I guess people are baptized in the Christian church, so I guess I should be baptized. I guess we take the Lord's Supper, so I should take the Lord's Supper. But the same ministers who preach the word, trained to rightly divide the word, are also entrusted then with the visible word which are the sacraments. For the two sacraments are given for the weakness of our faith, that we might see the mysteries of the gospel come alive to our sight and our senses. Consider the first sacrament, for instance, sacrament of baptism, right? It's many things that signifies. There are many texts you could go to, but as I have preached a bit of Ephesians 5, how it shows us the mystery of the gospel revealed by marriage. Right, that Christ might sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word. Baptism is many things, but as our catechism says, it, one of those things is our engagement to be the Lord's. It's like the engagement ring right, for the believer that says, I am betrothed to Jesus, that I belong to my faithful Savior, both body and soul in life or in death, and I am to be faithful to him only, That's my calling as the waters of baptism divide me from the rest of humanity to forsake all other gods as a husband and wife forsake all others and that my charge now is to never forget my first love. It shows me that by Christ's spirit poured out from above, he has applied his own blood to wash me 
And while baptism doesn't actually in its waters wash you literally of your sin, it shows me that. And it feeds my faith. It is a true means of grace. It takes the word of the gospel that says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And it puts that word before the congregation visibly and the party being baptized. And if I would receive that sign by faith, whether I am the one under the water or I am the one in the seat watching it, I would see that my heavenly husband loved me and died for me. And as I emerge out of its waters or I see the party emerge out of the waters, I see that I am to walk in newness of life by the Spirit's help. And of course, the word has much, much more to say on the significance of baptism, but certainly not less than that. So I hope you can see already that the one who is charged by God to to faithfully steward the word of God must also faithfully preach the word and administer the visible word under it. Now, you might think of the other sacrament. What word does the Lord's Supper make visible? Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Is that not the mystery of godliness, really? That God was manifest in the flesh that he might die for us. Such that when the action of the minister, and we're not celebrating the supper today, but most of you have seen how we do it, such that when the minister breaks the bread, how staggered we are by faith to see that God in the flesh was broken for our sin to save us such that when the action of the minister to pour out the wine into the chalice is done, we see the mystery of godliness, that God shed his blood for all my sins, such that there's not a single sin that God's blood cannot cleanse me of and wash me clean from. And so again, as the sacraments are the word visible, They are entrusted to the same ministers that are entrusted to preach the word of God and feed Christ's flock. The second point is that sacraments are official seals of the king. Due to time, I'll refer you to the sermon I preached on the sacraments for some more detail. You can find that in sermon audio. But sacraments are called signs and seals in Romans 4.11. For instance, of circumcision, the Old Testament equivalent of New Testament baptism, we read that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. Right, And of course, we know who administered Old Testament circumcision. It was those who were consecrated, the priests, right? But boys and girls, if we think on seals, do you know what a seal is? It's like a, a wax imprint right, that a king makes on an official letter uh, to seal it. And what the seal signifies is that the contents of the letter have the full backing and pledge of fulfillment by the king himself. Whatever is promised in the letter that has been sealed by the king, you can have. You, the possessor, can have. And so the seal of baptism tells you this. If you have faith in Christ, Jesus, King Jesus promises you will be washed of every sin. And that is his promise sealed to us. This is why we don't make up these rituals, right? They come from the king himself. And that's what makes a seal of the king so, so glorious, especially when that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is promised in the sacrament, you will have. The only necessary condition is faith in Christ. 
If you have it, what it signifies, you will have. And so when you see our brother baptized, God has put his seal on it. That as our brother has faith in Christ, just as the waters are a sign of the washing of sin, so too has he truly and really been washed of his sins because Jesus has promised that to him if he has come by faith. And as official seals of King Jesus, you see where this is going. His stewards, his ambassadors deliver them to you. Men are sent by God to do it. And I don't have time for all this that I had here in the text, but you will find that there are men who are sent, right? John one thirty three. John the Baptist, he that sent me to baptize with water. God sends men to do these things. Jeremiah twenty three twenty one. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. And in a New Testament analog, Romans ten fifteen. how shall they preach except they be sent? These are official men sent by the king. Nor do you find ever in the New Testament a person not commissioned to preach, baptize. The Philippian jailer did not baptize his family. Lydia did not baptize her family. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized by Philip, the evangelist. Christ himself had John the Baptist baptize him. What's in common? Those authorized to preach are authorized to do or or perform the sacraments. Now you might be puzzled by Paul who said, for Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.17. But that has to be understood rhetorically. Because just before that, he said he had baptized the household of Stephanus, Crispus, and Gaius. This is 1 Corinthians 1. But what he really means is baptism is utterly subservient to the preaching of the word. It is secondary to it. And it is our temptation to elevate the sacraments over the word. But they serve the word of God. And so again, that implies that only those who preach are to administer them. One final matter to deal with which is that you must separate the man from his office. I alluded to this earlier. This was found at the root of the Donatist controversy. You can read on that in your own time, or I can send you some material. But let's say that a minister uh, was later found out to be immoral and has been deposed from office, or even you find out he denies the faith. And you might ask, was all of his ministry prior to his apostasy or his sin found out valid? Were all those baptized by him really baptized? And here maybe is more painful. If I were converted under his ministry as preaching, is my conversion now to be held in suspect, even as Demas's ministry might have been when he abandoned Paul? No. This again is the glory of official ambassadors, right? Because Christ is the one who works through the office, even if the man is unregenerate. You need to think of it this way, boys and girls. We might have a president who is impeached, who even goes to jail. And maybe that might happen to one of our former presidents. Does that mean that all the laws he signed are now null and void? No. No. But what if I, right, not having office, walked into the Oval Office and took the president's pen and I signed the same laws? Would they be valid? No. You see, it does not appertain to me. I have no authority to do anything for we the people in that way, right? And that's why lay baptisms are not to be done. And yet the baptisms of ministers who are called to office lawfully are still valid even if they deny the faith. And that's what's wonderful about having an official ministry that Christ has ordained. We must end there. But uh, beloved, see this if nothing else, that Christ loves his church and has given men to you 
who will speak with his authority. He gives us a well-ordered ministry such that when his men preach the word and administer the promises of the word of God in his sacrament, you know that it is Christ himself who is ministering to you through ministers who are official instruments of his will. Not that the man gets the glory, for the man can be replaced, right? Ambassadors come and go, right? I, as your minister, I'm replaceable. I'm really nothing. And while I often understand the sentimentality that I want such and such minister, and this is the Reformed world, right? We see ministers need to do it, but we say, I want such and such minister to baptize me. Well, really, it doesn't matter who baptizes you. That's just sentimentality. Even Reformed people can fall in that trap. But if we would see it as Christ who is ministering to us through men, we would not care. In other words, then Christ must be everything to you. Where your minister or any minister die or be replaced. Thank God another minister will arise in his place and say, thus saith the Lord. And Christ will continue to speak to his people until the end of the age. He doesn't need any man. Right? Sometimes people are perplexed. Oh, where are all the great princes of Israel of old? Where are the Spurgeons? Where are the Rutherfords? God doesn't need any of them. He doesn't need any of them. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He will continue to send gospel ministers to his bride until he comes again on the last day. Until that day, we are to simply do, if Christ matters to us, we would ask what matters to Christ and we would do those things. Until then, until he comes, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, how you care for your bride that you set men apart and you charge them, feed my lambs. Father, we in the ministry are not often faithful to the charge. And I suppose many of us will be beaten with stripes. Forgive us, O Lord. Father, we pray that for the health of the congregation and all of Christ's people, that we would reclaim this idea of an official ministry, ordained ministry, a ministry that is glorious because it is not the ministry of death, but instead it's the ministry of life revealing the mystery of godliness in Christ. And may all those who have heard the word of God recognize the voice of the good shepherd speaking through this minister who is replaceable, and yet Christ who is irreplaceable with a word that is irreplaceable has spoken to them. May they take Christ for themselves today. We pray that you would bless thy people now with a great knowledge of the word of God, and would you help those servants of God entrusted to their charge be faithful. We ask this now for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated if you would.